Welcome to the Sabbath School Study Hour here at the Hilltop Church in Granite Bay in the greater Sacramento area. Thank you so much for investing your time with us, spending your time in the Word of the Lord. We have a beautiful lesson to study today. It's coming from this lesson, which is called Psalms, and we're studying from lesson number five, which has the title, Singing the Lord's Song in a Strange Land. This is going to be a beautiful study because it's so relevant to us. All of us in life go through the valleys, the difficult times of life, and so just seeing that we're not alone in this and that the Bible has so much to give us and to show us that we go through things that people long ago were already going through in their walk with the Lord. So don't miss out in our study. But before we get there, I'd like to offer a free offer or present to you a free offer. And this free offer is called Teach Us to Pray. So this is all about prayer. The book of Psalms is a prayer. It's all about prayer. And so uh, by reading this, by studying this, you're going to supplement a little bit your study of the book of Psalms. If you would like this free offer, you could call the number 866-788-3966 and you could get a free mail out. If you are outside of continental North America, you could go to our Amazing Facts website and there you would also find a digital download. And there's also a texting number if you'd like to get a digital download link. And you could go to S or you could text SH065 to the number 40544 and you would get a digital download for this offer as well. So take advantage of it. I'm sure that it will help uh, complete your study of this quarter's lesson. Before we begin, I'd like to say a word of prayer with you. Please bow your head. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for giving us scripture, for giving us the Bible and allowing us to see that we are not alone in our walk here in this world, Lord. Just seeing that the biblical characters, that the psalmists in this context, in this situation, they also went through the valleys, through the shadows of life that truly helps us understand what's expected of us and how we can traverse these dark moments by your side. What can we expect from you? How should we deal with these moments? All of these lessons, Lord, are held within your word. So let us, or allow us to extract the meaning from here and apply it to our life. I ask you these things and I thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I truly appreciate this week's lesson so much. I'm, I'm really loving the whole quarter, but this week's lesson is so important because it's so relatable, as I've already stated. It's something that all of us go through, the difficult moments, the valleys, and so, Studying this lesson day by day has given me so much strength, so much insight into what we're going through. Our memory verse uh, comes from Psalm 137, verse 4, and this is, this is what it says. Psalm 137, verse 4, that says, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You know, there's a poem called Victor. And this poem, it speaks about the tragic happenings in the life of this man named Victor, who, among other things, had been betrayed by his wife. Um, he had lost uh, a lot of his possessions. And the verses of this poem go on to describe uh, how he wanders the streets of his city aimlessly, not knowing where he's going, not knowing what he's thinking, not knowing what to do, because his life has been so uh, so devastated by his recent events, and at long last he finds himself at the outskirts of his town in a, in a deserted place in the city where the trash 
was burned. And that's where he finds himself. And so as the tears stream down his face, as the tears stream down his face into this far off distance towards the setting sun, he looks out towards the horizon and in great anguish, he looks up to the heavens and he cries out, Father, are you there? Crying out to God, Father, are you there? But from the heavens, he receives no answer. Nothing coming from above. Now, friends, almost all of us, if not all of us, have already had our share of traumas, of headaches, of perplexities in life. The moments where you don't understand what is happening. You don't know why what is happening is happening. Perhaps a moment of personal crisis, a phone call in the middle of the night with the news of some tragedy that's befallen people that you love. Perhaps the long siege of illness, of disease. Maybe a period of perplexity in which it seems that you won't emerge, you won't come out of it, you won't survive. Maybe the, con the confirmation of, of some unfavorable diagnosis. Absurd diseases, apparent random blows of chance. Occasions where the very foundations of life seem to shudder, to be torn asunder. Where it seems that there is absolutely no hope. That's what we're talking about here in this lesson. Friends, occasions in which we try to find meaning, we might even try to find meaning in the midst of the perplexities, of the questions, the chaos, or to find comfort in God through those perplexities, where we cry out, Father, are you there? Lord, where are you? And we wait, and we wait, and we wait some more, and our prayers seem to be returned to us, still enclosed in the envelope, unread, unopened, and stamped, address unknown. How do we survive the apparent delays of God? How is it possible to survive those moments of confusion, those moments of the silence of God, moments where it seems like God doesn't even make sense? You, we can't, moments where we can't really make a correlation between the God of the Bible and the events that we are going through. You know, all the Psalms mentioned in this week's lesson reflect the attitude of discouragement, of not understanding, of loss. Lessons that reflect the attitude here that we find in Psalm 137, songs of the exile. How could we sing songs of praise in this land, in this situation? Again, our memory verse is so relevant, it's so appropriate. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How many times have you whispered something akin to that? How can I be joyful here? How can I be hopeful in this situation? How can I be truly happy with this loss, with this disease, with this situation? How? That's what's being reflected. Friends, the truth is that we are exiles in a foreign land, in a strange land. We are exiles. Christians are described as such in Scripture, as pilgrims, sojourners. And we hang our harps, as is described here by these people in exile. They hang their harps. They retire their instruments of praise and worship because of the situations that they're in. Their instruments of joy, of happiness, of celebration on the willows of their exile. 
apparently without any reason for song or for praise. Why sing? Why praise the Lord? Why or how to do these things? And in doing so, we reject God's invitation to witness of our faith and our courage through the fiery furnaces of life. But we'll get there. Israel felt this way, as is described here in Psalm 137. Nostalgic, longing for home, longing for their identity, their homeland. Maybe one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life is to coexist with the silence of God. Have you ever wondered about that? How do I coexist with God's silence? With the moments where he should be saying something, he should be manifesting, or at least I think he should be manifesting himself, revealing himself. After all, one of the greatest comforts that can be felt in life at large, in general, is the companionship of someone that we love in moments of distress. No one likes to be alone, especially through the crisis. To have a shoulder to cry on? To have someone to embrace you? If not to tell you that everything's going to be okay, but at least to be there, everyone wants something like that. And who is it that we love more than God? Who do we, do we want beside us more than the Lord in these kinds of moments? And so, to be left in the dark, seemingly abandoned, alone, it's terrifying, chilling. And so the question that emerges from the Psalms that we're studying this week is, how? How do we deal with that? How do we survive that? And so the best thing that we can do is go back to these Psalms and see, well, what did they do? How did they survive? How did they cope, these psalmists? The lesson puts it in a very interesting way on Sabbath afternoon's uh, introduction. It says, as sin corrupts the world more and more, the earth has increasingly become a strange land to God's people. This reality creates a problem for the psalmist, how to live a life of faith in a strange land. What makes this reality, friends, even more unnerving is that the psalms are never doubting the, ex the existence of God. You don't really find the psalmists here saying that they don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe that God doesn't exist. They don't believe that he created the world. That's not what you find. They never doubt his power or his sovereignty. There's a plethora of chapters that proclaim the glory, the majesty, the greatness of God. And so how is it that we also find moments of deep anguish and perplexity because of his apparent absence, his silence? The psalmists recognize the power of God. That's not the issue. And we're, we'll get to that. We're going to be talking about that. They recognize the sovereignty, the power of God, as well as his just judgments. God is the permanent answer. The most high is sovereign in power. He's infallible, just, and trustworthy. In him we find refuge in the day of evil, in the day of tears, in the days of sorrow. As the psalm itself describes, a very present help in the day of trouble. And so the question here is, it's not, does God exist? The question is not, is God in command? Is he sovereign? The question is, how do I conciliate? How do I understand these two extremes? How do I go through this apparent cognitive dissonance of seeing that God, of understanding and even accepting that God is in control, that he is powerful, that he is just, and yet in moments where apparently I most need him, Everything's quiet from above. Sunday's lesson 
which has the title, The Days of Evil, goes into the beginning of our conversation, our discussion, the answers. Because up to this point, what I've done is provide a bunch of questions, right? How? Why? Where is God? And so here we're going to go through several answers to these main questions that are demonstrated and revealed in the book of Psalms. So Sunday's lesson, The Days of Evil, it revolves around two psalms that were written in the context of exile. So this is happening while the children of Israel were in exile in Babylon. And while there, they're going through the difficulty of trying to remain faithful to God, of remembering their core identity as Israelites, as the nation that God chose for a specific task, a specific mission. And yet here they are in exile. And here's the thing. Again, the children of Israel had gone through this sort of reality before already. They had been slaves in the land of Egypt. And here, once again, they find themselves in complete exile with overlords and taskmasters. Psalm 74 and 79 share the psalmist's lament of the destruction of Jerusalem. The temple, a tragedy that struck to the core of their very sense of identity. Because if there is one thing, a visual element, something visual that identified them, that struck them as different from every other land, every other nation, it was the temple. It represented everything that they were. It represented their hopes and dreams for the future. It represented their core mission in the world. And here they are, separated from their homeland. More than that, they see this event as a theological scandal. It isn't just a political or social disaster, but a deep spiritual crisis because it allows the other nations around them to point, to look at them, to blaspheme God's name, to challenge his sovereignty and question his covenant with Israel. Friends, here the Psalms, they dive deep into the problem of evil and it, they focus on its theological implications. I, want, I don't want you to miss what's going on here. Okay, think about this. Not only are they in exile, but now God's name is open to blasphemy, blasphemy coming from the other nations because of their situation. This destruction is seen as a direct consequence of Israel's sins. And they know as much. They know that they had broken their oaths, the covenant that God had established between them. They knew this. But they're still confused because apparently God isn't even defending himself. Forget them for a moment. God isn't defending his own name. He's not vindicating his name. And so this emphasizes the need, this whole reality. It emphasizes their need or the reason for their cry for God to intervene, for divine intervention, for their own atonement and for the restoration of Israel. That's what they're crying out for. They are begging God to show up. Have you ever begged God to show up? I know that I have. In several instances, I remember as a child, and this is a ridiculous uh, example, but I remember as a child where, I don't know if any of you remember, the, oh, yeah, you probably do, but, you know, back in about the early 90s, there was, this, uh, there was this little computer game, and it was called, I don't remember the name quite well, it was, I think it was Rat Race or something, but basically there's this little mouse, and you have to take him through a maze, and at the end of the maze, there's a cheese, and the maze gets progressively harder. And... What was cool about this game is that you could have a multiplayer. So whoever got to the end of the maze first would win. 
And I remember this one time, this one situation where my father was playing against my sister. And my sister is considerably older than I am. She's eight years older than I am. And we always had this rivalry growing up. And on that day, she had been bugging me a lot. She had been irritating me and, you know, poking jokes and fun at me. And so I really wanted my dad to win so that I could then turn back to her and say, ha ha, you lost, you know, dad won. And she was, she was just so over the top with her provocation, you know, with her, you know, just poking me and making fun of me that I, I just got, I was full of rage. You know, I was just so angry. And I remember, and again, this is the prayer of a child, all right? I was four years old, five years old. And so I remember going to uh, the closet, closing myself up in the closet and kneeling down and praying to God, dear Lord, please let daddy win. Please let daddy win. Don't let my sister's name, nickname, her name is Diane. Her nickname is Jida. And so, Lord, please don't let Jida win. Please don't let Jida win. Let, let my dad win. And um, I think my dad actually won that game. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was begging God to show up. Now, again, that's the prayer of a child. I'm not, I'm not here comparing that situation to this one. But, you know, in this ridiculous moment, I'm begging God to show up. But since then, I certainly have begged him to show up in much more serious moments. And I'm sure that you have as well. Moments where you are begging God, crying out, Lord, where are you? Please show up. That's what these people are going through. Because they're in exile. They're being mocked and derided by everyone around them, by the other nations, by the people there in Babylon that are asking them to sing with what seems to be a mocking tone. Come on, sing your songs. Oh, they're so beautiful. You know, patronizing them. And they're begging God to show up. The psalmists here are grappling with the tension between God's forbearance and his infinite wisdom and power. They struggle to understand why a benevolent and omnipotent God, a God can do everything, anything, and a God that is kind and just and true, why would he allow his chosen people and his sacred place to be desecrated by pagan nations? And that poses a significant challenge to their faith and their understanding of God. How do they conciliate this? More than this, the biblical concept of God's inheritance, which Israel embodies as their core identity, is seen here in these psalms. They understand that their identity is connected to their inheritance in the Lord and in their, their being God's inheritance. They are. They see themselves as God's inheritance, the Lord's inheritance here on earth. And so this inheritance, it translates into God's divine election and his covenant, suggesting that despite their current circumstances, God's promises will ultimately unveil. So I hope you understand what's going on. Here are these people, they, not only are they, are they grappling with this, this difficult situation of God being true and honest and pure and kind and omnipotent, and they're in exile, their temple lies in ruin, and overall, they understand themselves as God's inheritance here on earth. And so the Lord had promised so much to them, so much to them, now, we know that those promises were hinged upon the covenant, which they had repeatedly broken. But still, here they're still grappling with this reality. The psalmist reveals that one day all nations will become God's inheritance, serving him in a fulfillment of end-time prophecies. And so even here we see the prophetic insight coming from the Lord to these psalmists. The defense of God's character, and this to me is the most important part on Sunday's lesson, the defense of God's character emerges as the critical theme. 
The psalmist argue that if evil actions of nations go unpunished, it would imply in a loss of divine power. That's their implication. Therefore, God's intervention is not only about Israel's salvation, but also about vindicating his name and his authority in the world. But friends, the truth is that we know that God is much greater than this. God's name will never be mocked. And it comes to a point where the Lord, in this context, in this situation, he doesn't need to vindicate his name because he's so much greater than this moment, than this situation. But it's difficult to understand that as we're going through these moments. Think about the early Christians having their faith being mocked and derided. Think about every point in history where God's people have been persecuted, where their beliefs, their morality has been undermined. Is God being truly, does he need to vindicate himself in that in every single situation? Or isn't the Lord much greater than that? Can we ever truly um, embarrass God? Can God ever be embarrassed or humiliated that way. He's so much greater than all that, friends, bigger than all that. But it's difficult to, as humans, in the moment, understand that. You know, um, I, I, for several years, I was a, a chaplain, a Bible teacher in, in a few schools in Brazil. And, you know, dealing with children, you'll usually get some of those kids, that, some of them that love you and, you know, they're, you're they're everything to them and they look up to you. And sometimes there are those children that they don't really like you and, you know, they're a little bit more difficult to deal with. And with some of those kids, they'll try their best to put you down. Oh, you're the worst pastor in the world. You're the per worst teacher in the world. And they're just making fun of you. They're kind of poking at you. And, oh, I don't like you. I don't, you know, you, uh, that even happens nowadays sometimes. I'm preaching and I'll have one of the kids say, Pastor, your sermons are boring. You got to keep me awake. You know, kids will be kids. I don't. So that's what I'm, I'm describing to you. There's not really anything that these children will say that will hurt my feelings because I understand the situation. I understand children. And, you know, sometimes I have to learn from that. I have to, I know that I have to sometimes do better to preach, to get their attention. But truly, there's not much that these kids could do to truly hurt my feelings. Why? Because I understand they're children and they're going through their motions of life. I don't know their background. I don't know what they're going through at home. Maybe that's their way of lashing out. Maybe that's a cry for help. Maybe that's a defense mechanism. But they're not really hurting my feelings regardless of what they're saying. That's God here. But we have a hard time understanding. And that's what these children of Israel, they're going through. Seemingly, God's name is being mocked and derided. And again, friends, that's where it becomes real for us. Because the suggestion here is that our actions, especially our sins, our moral failures, can have a significant impact on how the world perceives God. You see, while God will not be affected because God is so much bigger and better and greater than our little planet and whatever these nations and these people around us do or say about him, we still have a job as his inheritance to represent him. And so to a very large extent, the way that I walk, the way that I talk, the way that I behave myself, that will say a lot about the God that I worship. And so here these children of Israel, they're seeing that because of their repeated neglect of God's covenant, their repeated breaking of the oaths that they had made to him as a nation, God's name is being mocked and derided. And that hurts them. And that hurts the perception of their God to the nations around them. The psalmist warn us that the actions of those who profess faith in God can either uplift or damage the witness of that faith. 
After all, we have a responsibility of witnessing for him and of him. Friends, Psalm 74 and 79 are a deep meditation on human sin, on divine justice, and the importance of upholding God's character in the face of evil. There's a beautiful quote that comes from the book, The Desire of Ages. And this is what it says. The honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of his people. Again, the honor of God, the honor of Christ is involved in the perfection of the character of people. So you see here that this doesn't really have anything to do with God. By honoring the Lord, by honoring Christ, we're not making him better. We are making ourselves better or we are being made better by honoring the Lord. Because that witnesses to the world around us, that witnesses, witnesses to our neighbors, to our family, to our peers. And that lifts us up, that builds us up. So when we honor the Lord with our life, with our words, with our actions, it's not really, it's not about him in the sense that we're, we're making him better. God is already the best. But it has something to do with us. It changes us when we're coherent with what we believe. Monday's lesson continues. Monday's lesson has the title, At Death's Door. At Death's Door. And it revolves around Psalms 41, Psalms 88, and Psalm 102. Now, the prayers that are mentioned here in these Psalms are cries for salvation from sickness and from death. And they demonstrate that God's children are not free, are not immune from suffering, from anguish, and from pain. Look at what Psalms 102 verse 3 through 5 says. For my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. Is that relatable? I imagine that it is for many of us going through truly the depths of pain, physical, mental, emotional pain. Sometimes you don't want to eat anymore. Sometimes you don't want to get out of bed. Don't want to go to work. Don't want to deal with life. That's what we read here in these Psalms, in these situations, where the author, apparently, the psalmist, he doesn't want to deal with life because life has become so burdensome, so painful. Friends, faith in God is not a shield against suffering or a passport to tranquility, an absolute exemption from life's evils. Faith in God does not guarantee that we won't be visited by pain. What it does guarantee is his presence through the pain, through the afflictions. But in an imperfect world, of course, it would be great. It would be marvelous. It would be a good deal to have some sort of pass, some sort of get out of jail free card from the evils that are common to everyone else. And there are, there are niches or niches of theology, of church, of Christianity that preach exactly that. And that's called prosperity theology. Invest a little in God to receive in return health, success, a car, a house, a better job, a promotion. And that that's the very essence, the definition of the American dream, to have that lifestyle. To expect these things in a world that's dominated by evil is to have an appointment with disappointment. The representatives of prosperity theology often speak about the gold and the silver of Solomon, 
his glory, his prosperity, implying that they can expect the same treatment. And they forget to point out that the one true representative of the Christian faith is not Solomon, but Jesus Christ. The representative of the Christian faith is Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the man of sorrows, who was poor, who had nowhere to lay his head, who drank from the cup of suffering, of pain, of sadness, of sorrow. The idea that we live in an imperfect world but still expect to have VIP treatment means that we are destined to meet with disaster. We will be superficial Christians at that point, weak, frail, and materialistic. This is not what we find in the book of Psalms. We don't find this reality there. Notice Psalm 88, for example. As the lesson puts it on Monday's lesson, it says, in Psalm 88, God is charged with bringing the psalmist to the verge of death. Notice, however, that even when the most daring complaints are uttered, the lament is clearly an act of faith. For if the Lord in his sovereignty allowed trouble, he could restore the well-being of his child. At the grave's threshold, the psalmist remembers God's wonders, loving kindness, faithfulness, and righteousness. Despite his sense of being stricken by God, the psalmist clings to God. Although he suffers, he does not deny God's love and knows that God is his only salvation. These appeals show that the psalmist knows not only suffering, but also has an intimate knowledge of God's grace and that the two do not necessarily exclude each other, necessarily exclude each other. So here we see that there is a biblical understanding that while we're going through pains, there's a precedent, there are examples in the Bible that while we go through the unknowns, the mysteries, the absurdities of God, we can still understand and believe in him for who he is or who he represents himself to be. And we see that again and again and again in the Bible. Look at all the examples that we find. Look at Abraham wandering around. Jacob losing his son. Look at Joseph being sold by his brothers. Moses needing to run away and living what seemed to be a lifetime of nothing in the wilderness. Look at all the people in the Bible running for their lives, people who are persecuted, where the book of Hebrews tells us that they, they had nothing. They walked around in sheepskins. They were slaughtered and betrayed. The world was not worthy of them. And so that's the reality that we find through Scripture, not of prosperity, not of the best, not that God doesn't want us to have good, abundant lives, but that's just not the truth of this world. The objective here, friends, is not to have a free, comfortable ride. The objective here is to be saved. It's to go back to where we started from, back to what real life is. This is just a vacation gone horribly wrong. Tuesday's lesson continues with the great question, where is God? That's the question here. This lesson today, Tuesday's lesson, it focuses on several different psalms. For example, Psalms 10, 23, 27, 32, 42, 63, 69, and 102. Those are the lessons that are dealt with on Tuesday. And perhaps this is one of the most harrowing experiences in the Christian walk. God's silence. Moments where we just cry out and say, Lord, where are you? Over and over, the psalmists describe these dark moments that they go through. 
Just look at these two examples found here in Psalm 22 and 27. Psalm 22, verse 1, that says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Does that sound familiar at all? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ, he wasn't doubting God. He wasn't implying that God was nowhere, that God didn't exist, that God had... No, Jesus was quoting from a messianic psalm. Psalm 22. Some of us, you know, going through the Gospels, we don't really relate the two with each other. We end up thinking that Jesus here was questioning God. Christ doesn't question God, ever. He's quoting from a psalm. Look at what Psalm 27 verse 9 says. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Now, friend, let me ask you this truth. Can God hide his face? Or does God do that? Does he abandon anyone? Does he turn, turn your servant away in anger? Does God throw temper tantrums? Does God leave me or forsake me? I don't think so. That's not how I see scripture. The Lord won't abandon his children in their moment of greatest need. But sometimes we need to go through that silence to learn more. Because frequently the silence that comes from God, these deserts, the Bible describes them as wildernesses, these moments, they educate us. They teach us and help us grow. In life, the best answers don't come from people but from time used by God as a teacher to instruct us. Over time in the desert, again, in the wilderness, which represents the silence of God, we understand that he is always right. As John Calvin, one of the great reformers, used to say, we will understand that it was our short-sightedness, our stigmatism, that prevented us from seeing the greater picture. You know, as a, as a Bible teacher, I've already told you um, that I was a Bible teacher, a chaplain for several years. I learned that on the day of the exam, on the day of the test, the teacher remained silent. That wasn't the moment where the teacher would be teaching. The students, that's the moment where the students would demonstrate what they had learned. So the time of the test it's not about the teacher speaking or teaching. It's about the student demonstrating what he's learned. And that's no different when it comes to the test of life. The lesson makes an extraordinary point on Tuesday's lesson when it says, it is remarkable that the psalmist resolve not to keep silent in the face of God's silence. The psalmist uns unswervingly believe in prayer. Because prayer is directed to the living and gracious God. God is still there, even when he is apparently absent. He is still the same God who heard them in the past, and so they are confident that he hears them now. Did you see that? I hope you did. God is still there, even when he is apparently absent. God is still there when he is apparently absent. 
and they believe that he is by faith. That's what we see in these psalmists, because as they go through their psalm, as they go through their song of lament, they might begin by saying, Lord, where are you? Father, don't abandon me, don't forsake me. But you'll see that there is this thread that's woven through the Psalms that is the fact that God has not abandoned them because they're still crying out to him. They're still praying to him. Why would you pray to someone that abandoned you? Why would you cry out to someone that abandoned you, that has forsaken you? So here you see that duality that on the one, one side, one hand, they are going through the valley, they're going through the shadow. But on the other hand, they still accept and fully know that God is there, God is present. And what that tells me, friends, is that this is something that we must learn to do. Because sometimes it seems like we're praying to no one. Again, I don't know if you can relate to that. I know that I can. Sometimes it seems that I'm praying to no one, that I'm crying out, and there's no answer. And I can tell you several moments in life where that would be the reality. Where the question is, why and where? But if I understand my Bible correctly here in this book of Psalms, I'll understand that even when I'm going through those moments, there is strength that comes, there is insight that comes, there is a benefit, a good thing that comes from crying out to God even in those moments. The occasions of the Lord's silence are moments of growth, not because God is silent, but because those are the moments in which we learn to listen to him. I hope you got that. Again, the occasions of God's silence, of the Lord's silence, are moments of growth, not because God is silent, but because those are the moments where we best learn to hear and to listen to him. Remember, do you remember when God revealed himself to Elijah on Mount Horeb? That appears in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11 and 12. I want to read it to you. Look at what it says. Then he said, go out. This is God speaking to Elijah, who had ran away. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. God was not in the loud noise. He wasn't in the, you know, the, 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 the hurricane that was going by in the tornado. The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now an, the, the, the earth was shaking and quaking, but God was not there either. He wasn't in that great noise. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Again, a big event, a loud event, a dangerous event. But the Lord was not there. And after the fire, a still small voice. Friends, one of the most important things that I've had to learn, and look, I'm just coming to you raw when it comes to this, okay? This isn't, you know, a pastor speaking. This isn't, this is just someone that has learned through the deserts of life how to, how to relate to God in the deserts of life. We need to learn to recognize God's voice. And the only way that we do that is by knowing him, spending time with him. You know, I've learned that it's very enjoyable, of course, obvious. It's enjoyable to spend good time, good times with people that we love. Of course it is. But it's going through the moments of difficulty. It's going through the tears, going through the crisis, going through the hardships together that truly grows a relationship. And so understanding God's silence as a moment of growth, a moment of not only personal growth, 
I feel that we lose a lot when we, when we excluded the, the other aspect here. It's not only about personal growth, it's about growth with Him, growth with the Lord, growth in the relationship with Him. We need to recognize the still small voice. And so many times when we cry out and we exclaim, Lord, where are you? The answer that comes exploding back is, I'm right here. But you need to recognize my still small voice because I'm not in the loud things of the world. I'm not in the hurricane. I'm not in the earthquake. I'm not in the wind and the tornado. I'm not in the fire. But it's hard to listen when you're going through all that, wouldn't you think? With all the chaos, with all the mess, with the earthquake, the tornado, the hurricanes of life, where you, you, you just don't know what's going to happen next. Trying to stay still, trying to find some kind of clarity to hear the still small voice. Friends, that, there's a learning process. There's a, there's a curve to that understanding. And so what I feel that God teaches us in these moments is to listen to his voice. Don't you think that it's curious that later on, Christ himself, he says, my peace I give you, my peace I leave you, and it's a peace that this world cannot understand. Why is it a peace that the world can't understand? Because peace to the world is situational. Peace of the world has to do with the, the context, the experience, the immediate experiences and situations of life. If I'm not sick, if my family is all right, if I have a good income, if my house is okay and I have how to survive and I'm thriving in my job, if, 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 if. Peace is conditional then. Conditioned to the circumstances. But if I understand the Bible correctly, the peace that Jesus is offering, it's a peace that is unconditional. It's not conditioned by circumstances. I mean, go to the very context where Jesus speaks about this. It's in his last night. It's when he's about to die. Was Jesus in some kind of condition or situation of peace? Was this one of the good times or one of the difficult times? This was a harsh time. And so the peace that he's speaking of here, it's not a peace that we're going to have conditioned on situations, but it's a peace that endures through the situations, through the absence of his, of his obvious voice. Friends, we must learn to live a, a life of peace through the situations of chaos. And that is just accepting who God is in our life. My peace I give you, my peace I leave you, and it is a peace that the world cannot understand. So while you're going through the hurricane, while you're going through the tornado, while we're going through the volcanoes of life, peace. Not because of the situation, but because we know one who is greater. You see, friends, I've said this here once and I'll say it again. Walking with God in this lifetime, walking with the Lord here in this world, it doesn't mean that you're building a house in this wonderful land with no hurricanes, with no tornadoes, with no storms or tempests. No, those will come. What it does represent is that you are building a house with the Lord. You're building a life with him that no storm will knock down. That's the truth. So where is God? Right beside you. But perhaps you need to learn how to hear him, how to hear the still, small voice. And maybe that's, that's more important than having temporal peace, regardless of the situation. The lesson continues, Wednesday's lesson, which has a follow-up question. Has the Lord's promise failed forevermore. Because that's the temptation to think, well, everything that God has promised, it's hinged upon him. And the great question is, well, where is he? 
So that's the follow-up question here. Because one of the most difficult struggles in life is navigating between the known past, the unknown future, and the apparently never-ending present. Friends, the past, think about it, the past can be contemplated in whichever speed that we desire. Thousands of years, countless, countless events, infinite imagination, that can all pass in the blink of an eye if we just want it. I can look back in world history, human history, the events of medieval, the medieval times, the events of the ancient Babylonian times. We can think about all these events, all these times in a split second. But the present is much more difficult to deal with because it seems to roll on forever. Have you ever had a sleepless night where you look at the clock and you think that hours have gone by, but the time just rolls on and it's minute by minute by unending minute? I've had several of those. These minutes seem to drag on forever. And you know, part of what makes this hard is that while we can remember the happenings of the past, having happened over the span of years, the minutes of the present seem somehow longer. And so Psalm 77, we see presented that same reality. It seems that while God has been ever so active and present in the past history of Israel, in everything that they've done. Think about the, the Red Sea opening, the plagues of Egypt. Think about the conquest of Canaan. Think about everything that happened in their past. Well, that was still God. And God claims to be the same today, tomorrow, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. So, why is it that he was so active then, but here when they're in exile, he's not active? That was their question. Has his promise failed? And it gets to the point where the psalmist begins to doubt God's presence, his care, his mercy, his very character. Because look at what Psalm 77 verse 7 through 9 says. It says, will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? This is the, psalmist, the psalmist's torment. Not that God doesn't exist, but where is he? Has he changed? Is he not the same God that he was in Egypt, in the Exodus, in the conquest of Canaan? Is he no longer the same God who had done all those wonderful things in the past? The God had, who had sent the manna, who had provided for them day in, day out? This psalm is understood better if we break down the introduction into a few different parts. We'll see, not yet, we'll see Psalm 77, verse 1 through 3 as cries of affliction. Here the psalmist is introducing the, uh, his affliction. Jesus himself, friends, prayed out loud, having offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his piety. If Jesus himself is crying out in anguish because of this same kind of reality, imagine us. Then you have verse 4 through 9 which is the search of his heart. He's searching. He's asking. He is relating to God. And that's where we have insight into his deep affliction because here we find the symptoms of his affliction, of his doubt. The symptoms, sleeplessness, confusion, but mainly the roots of his condition, which is a state of doubt. Where is God? Has his promise failed? 
The problem, friends, is that we forget that God operates on a much, much greater time frame than, than we do. He has a perspective that cannot be compared to ours. And while we see the trees, he sees the forest. While we see the sun, he sees the universe, the galaxies unending. And while we count seconds, God experiences time all at once. And that's where remembering his works of old makes complete sense. Because while we consider it past to us, God dwells eternally, eternally in the days of old. He is still that same God. Because he is the eternal God. He dwells in the days of old, in the days of now, and in the days of tomorrow. Our God the God of the Bible, is the God that experiences time all at once. That is what the name Yahweh represents. The self-existent one. The one who is. Do you get that? The one who is? It's interesting that the only way to understand God's name in biblical Hebrew is by overlapping the letters of his name. It's a word that doesn't even exist in the Hebrew language. The only way to understand it is by understanding the three different kinds of letters. It's Y, H, and W. These letters that overlap each other as meanings of time, significance of time, that overlap represent a God that experiences time all at once. That's the God that we see here in Scripture. And so while we can't really see the forest or the trees, we lose the forest for the trees, he has the perception of the entire forest. He does not change. And that means that while we might not understand anything about what's happening, we can fully understand that he is in control. We don't have to understand what's going on. We know who's in control of what's going on. That's the purpose, for example, of prophecy. Not to put on tinfoil hats and to guess the future with crystal balls, but to be confident that the same God that revealed the future is absolutely capable of navigating through what he has already revealed. Look at what 1 John 14, 29 says. It says, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. Again, prophecy. This is God confirming our faith in him. That while things will be happening, and in this case, he's talking about pretty serious events, events of world history that will happen. But when we see them happening, we'll remember that he said they would happen and we would believe. Believe that he's still in control. Because the great temptation is to forget that he's in control. And so remembering the past is a cure for the doubts of the night and the fear and the chaos. He is still the same. The lesson ends, Wednesday's lesson by saying this, the assurance that the psalmist receives from God does not consist of explanations about his personal situation, but rather a confirmation of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. Like Job, the psalmist is encouraged to wait on the Lord in faith, knowing that he is the same God who performed the miracles in Israel's past. The psalmist also realizes that your footsteps were not known recognizing God's guidance, even in situations in which his presence is not obvious to human eyes. The psalmist acknowledges that God is simultaneously revealed and hidden, and so he offers praise to the Lord's mysterious and sovereign ways. Thursday's lesson, it completes Wednesday's lesson. The title is, Lest the Righteous Be Tempted. Thursday's lesson is, again, in a way it's connected to Wednesday's, in the context of observing things through the lens of time. The problem raised by the psalmist is as old as time, which is why does it seem that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? 
That's the big question of Psalm 73, which is what Thursday's lesson is all about. Look at what verses 12 through 14 say. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increased in, in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and ch chastened every morning. It seems as though the psalmist is genuinely confused. Has he been righteous for nothing? The lesson puts it in a very interesting way. It says, these psalms lament the current prosperity of the wicked and the challenge that this fact poses to the righteous. The wicked not only prosper, but at times also openly despise God and oppress others. The perplexing issue is that while the scepter of, the, of wickedness dominates the world, the scepter of righteousness seems to be failing. Why not then give up and embrace evil as others do? Friends, so many times we're tempted to think the same thing. Why do good? Why do good when it doesn't seem to get us anywhere? When everyone else seems to be having the best time doing what's wrong, doing their own thing, doing their own way? Why do even good if they're just having a great time? But that is precisely where Wednesday's lesson comes in because our perspective is too short-sighted. We can't see on the same perspective, on the same dimension, the same breadth as God. And so it's only when the psalmist goes to God's sanctuary that he is given the correct understanding of life. Only in the presence of God where eternity extends forever is he reminded that God will not be mocked that the Lord of heaven is the Lord of hosts. And that is the very essence. He is the very essence of morality, the very standard of righteousness. And it's impossible then to do wrong and prosper. It's impossible to disconnect ourselves from the source of life and expect to live on forever. That's the truth here, that while it might be a little while that these doing what's evil prosper, it's not forever. And since we don't, live in forever, it's difficult for us to perceive that reality, to understand it. The problem then isn't with God, but with our limited understanding of him, of him and our skewed perspective of time. God isn't illogical, friends. God is super logical. He is above our limited comprehension, our ability of comprehension. And so we are called to persevere in these times, in the understanding that God's way is always best. God's way is always the best way, regardless of our understanding of it. And that's why we're summoned to continue in prayer and supplication, continue in doing good, regardless of what it may seem like, regardless of others doing something bad or living a bad lifestyle and seemingly everything's okay for them. And for us who are trying to do what's good, trying to do what's best, everything is going wrong for us. Regardless of those situations, the Bible is telling us that while someone might fool some people, a few people for a long time, or someone might fool a lot of people for a little bit of time, no one really fools everyone all the time. It's impossible to live a wicked life and prosper. The lesson finishes brilliantly on Friday by sharing this. The times when God hides his face do not undermine the efficacy of prayer. On the contrary, these occasions cause the psalmist to examine themselves, to recall God's past saving acts, and to seek God with confession and humble petitions. Faith 
grows strong by coming in conflict with doubts and op opposing influences. The experience gained in these trials is of more value than the most costly jewels. So the secret, the lesson, is to continue in prayer. Through the hardship, through the pain, and that's where we learn that the best way out is always through. The best way out is always through. Through prayer, through fellowship with God. Perhaps not understanding his ways, but accepting his ways as being the best way. I hope that the Lord blesses you. I hope that this lesson was a blessing to your understanding of this very deep and complicated talk, which is hardship and pain in the context of Christian living. Um, I would like to invite you again to take advantage of our free offer. It's called Teach Us to Pray. So if you'd like to receive this free offer, you could call the number 866-788-3966. You could also text SH065 to the number 40544 for a digital download, and it will truly be a blessing in your study of this book of Psalms as you pray to the Lord in these difficult moments of life. I'd like to invite you right now to bow your head wherever you are and say a word of prayer with me. Dear Lord, thank you so much for being who you are through thick and thin. Thank you, Lord, because we know that while we won't understand everything of what's going on in our life, everything of what to expect in you, everything about how to understand the situations, we do know that the Bible tells us who you are and how to understand your presence through these difficult situations. So, Lord, please help us learn not to pray why, but to pray for what purpose in our life. Give us strength. Give us perspective. And I ask you these things, not in my name, Lord, because there's no power or authority there, but in the name of Jesus Christ, who has lived here in this world, lived our life, shed our tears, shed our blood, died our death, and resurrected to bring us closer to him. I ask in his name, amen and amen. May God bless you, and I hope to see you again here next time for our Sabbath School Study Hour. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.